Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. On this episode, we return to AOC 2022, which took place a few weeks ago. During the show, I had the opportunity to sit down with author, futurist, and former NSA officer, Dr. Eric Hazeltine. I was also joined by special co-host, retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General Guy Walsh, now serving as executive director of the National Security Collaboration Center at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Dr. Hazeltine is an accomplished neuroscientist whose career brought him right into the heart of our EMSO and cyber professions. He was a former CTO for National Intelligence at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Director of Research at the NSA, an Executive Vice President at Walt Disney Imagineering, and a Director of Engineering at Hughes Aircraft Company. Eric has authored or co-authored more than 40 patents in optics, special effects, electronic media, and is widely published in leading magazines and academic journals. So with that, I want to bring you to my discussion with Dr. Eric Hazeltine and special co-host Guy Walsh. Let's listen in. All right, so just to get us started here, and then I really will stop talking, I, I, I do promise. Um, but, you know, one of the thrusts of the, your discussion at AOC 2022 and, and through your books has been really about, uh, you know, innovation, but really innovation through relationships. And I really, and I would like to get just kind of a take, Dr. Um, Dr. Hazeltine, on uh, to provide us some context on for the discussion today about the role that relationships play in advancing innovation and new ideas in a bureaucracy. Yeah. Well, when I started off as a system engineer in 1979, we thought that if you wanted to innovate, it was 95% technology and 5% all the other stuff, marketing, contracts, all that other stuff. Now, 40-some years later, I know that it was in the reverse, that if you want to innovate, it's 5% technology and 95% all that other stuff, which I would categorize as relationship building. When you're an innovator, your real job is changing human behavior. You're doing something new, and humans have to use it. Humans have to design it, build it, sell it, buy it, operate it, maintain it, and update it. And if that entire chain doesn't buy in from the start, you will not succeed. So the one piece of advice I'd give to any innovator is shift the focus and the frame of reference from innovating in technology to building relationships to make the technology get there. So, Dr. First, uh, let me, uh, your, your 
briefing today was absolutely fascinating. And for the leader, uh, for the listeners who weren't able to attend uh, this year's AOC International Symposium, uh, I, I just want to say, number one is congratulations, Ken, because again, with the audience that you have, with the expanded type piece there, but also bringing in a lot of the young crows. And so the audience did look different, had a different feel this time. And I will simply tell you that uh, Dr. Eric Hazeltine's uh, presentation was not only fascinating, but it's different than probably most of those you've heard on this podcast, right? Because again, he, he's his career path is much, much different uh, being a neuroscientist, a futurist, uh, coming out of Disney Imagineering. And, and, and again, from a introductory for those who haven't uh, met and had the chance to uh, talk with Eric, uh, I will simply say that uh, the, the best um, introduction was probably done on, on the book, his previous book, which was uh, A Spy in Moscow Station, and where Michael Hayden talks about uh, hiring Eric out of Disney imagination to lead research group out of the National Security Agency. So, so bringing that. And, and uh, Michael Hayden explained it, saying this was the most bold and audacious move I've ever made uh, at that time, is bringing someone from industry uh, to change and to shake things up, really. Uh, and we saw that today. Uh, and so we were, we were making a little bit of a joke earlier that this is probably the first time at an AOC conference we had discussion about pom-pom crabs and uh, uh, sea urchins and porcupines. Uh, but really that idea of convergence of different uh, themes and different uh, flavors, uh, you really did hit, hit the nail on the head with that. So just a little bit, again, thoughts about uh, what we've just talked about in terms of bringing in convergence of different ideas. Uh, you spent a lot of time today talking about that convergence between EW and cyber and really pulling the strings there. So uh, just share with our audience a little bit about that. Well, I think I want to start at 100,000 feet. And that is, EW is primarily, in most people's minds, about technology. But the illusion is that technology is different from biology. It is not. It is designed and built and operated by biological entities for biological purposes, political purposes. Um, Clausewitz said, war is politics with violence. And EW is basically about advancing one group's needs over another. And so, if you look at it that way, you look at EW in a completely different perspective. As a natural outgrowth of biology, not something apart and separate from it. And that's hugely important in getting fresh ideas. And what I said in my talk was that you need to look at the wisdom of nature over billions of years, and all the answers are there. So in my talk, I went into all the different ways that prey animals mess with their predators' heads and vice versa and said there's got to be some fresh ideas in there for the future uh, for EW. And I gave some examples of that. Um, I also talked about once you have an innovation, how do you get it across the valley of death into mission onto the battlefield? And that's where we come back to uh, things like fusion that you just mentioned. Uh, what I said in the talk is that EW and cyber are on a collision course to become something new, which we don't yet have a name for. Someone will come up with it sometime, but the way I look at it is really, if you're honest with yourself, an EW system is a computer with a RF front end and an antenna. And so the distinction between 
cyber and EW is not a distinction worth it anymore, in my opinion. For example, you radiate signals that get looked at as either baseband or carrier by the receiver. They get put in a buffer somewhere that's a digital, which is connected to a network somewhere. So if you're radiating signals, what's to say that those couldn't be cyber type signals? You're in a buffer, maybe you could do a buffer overflow. And so I think that that's kind of the new frontier. And the biggest obstacle, because it's something new and unfamiliar to people, is going to be changing people's behavior. You're going to say, oh, that's a cyber problem. That's in that silo. No, that's an EW problem. That's in that silo. And the reality is it's in the white spaces of the national security enterprise. It's a new thing that needs to be given life on its own as a separate thing. So let me pull on that string a little bit. And, and you just said it, uh, you said all the answers are there. But you earlier had also said, we're just not asking the right questions. And, and, and that was, I, I think, key. So you spend a lot of time, just as you did in that description, of, of saying, here are some of the questions we really need to be answering. You know, so so I'll, I guess I'll throw that out in a broad. What are the key scientific questions we should be answering right now? I think, again, I'll start at 100,000 feet. What is the problem we're trying to solve? Zhao Enlai, the number two guy under Mao Zedong said, the first step to solving a problem is to name it. What is the core underlying problem that EW tries to solve? It's how to be a windshield instead of a bug. How to not be a prey and how to be an effective predator. And how to do it in a very fast changing world where some of our adversaries are changing much faster than we are with resources we can't even dream of. You take the Chinese, for example, they spend hundreds of billions of dollars on cell phones and computer chips and things like that, and then they design them from the start to have dual use. We can't compete with that. And they, they work at the speed of commercial, not the speed of the far. And so we have to understand the big problem that we're trying to solve. And like I say, biology has all the answers because prey animals live right next to their predators. If you watch that movie, My Octopus Teacher, it's fascinating because you have this octopus, which is very smart, living literally right next to a shark. There's no containment. You know, so if you look at the cyber analogy, you have to assume that the enemy is in your system and operate with the assumption that you can still operate even though you've been penetrated. And that's what the, that's what the octopus does. And if you watch that movie, you'll see 10 different strategies it uses to putting you know, seashells on top of it so it looks like the sea bottom, to jumping on the shark's back and going for a ride, to giving up a tentacle to the shark and you know, healing with the rest of his body. There's like 10 different strategies. And I think the answers are all there if we only know where to look. So, so let's, one of the things we talked about in your presentation is that transition from offense and defense. Uh, you know, which is more important, where can you find success? And so, uh, and, and, and the bio examples you just got, you, you talked about several that are, these are defensive, but here's also some of the, uh, uh, I'm going to use the word attack, given my background, but the offensive type of things and being able to blend and transition between that. So talk, talk to us the difference in terms of our approach of offensive and defensive, whether yeah. it be on the cyber, EW, wherever. Great question. Um, I'll tell you something as a neuroscientist. Our brains are taxonomic. We put things in boxes, like offense and defense. But actually, nature isn't that way. 
nature doesn't see a distinction between offense and defense. And I'll give you an example. You have this beetle larvae that is preyed upon by amphibians, frogs and toads. And what it has evolved is a way of when the frog eats it, it grabs onto the frog's mouth and it starts eating the frog. So it puts out signals that say, come here frog, eat me. And then the frog grabs it, it thinks it's a prey and it turns out it's the prey. And that's nature. There really this distinction between offense and defense and it's hugely important that people get their head around that because again, in bureaucracies, those tend to be different people with different cultures, with different organizations, with different budgets, when in reality, it's all one thing. That you can go from being a prey to a predator in a heartbeat. When you come to cyber, I've always said, well, look, we know that really clever nation state adversaries are going to get inside of us. It's just a fact, no one wants to admit it, but it's true. So we need to find them, we need to control it, but let's assume that we can use it. Let's play judo. Maybe we can shape their perception by steering them in certain areas and then we get inside them. So I think having the mindset that every prey is a predator and every predator is a prey is really important. Um, I, I want to jump in here. I want to pull the thread on, on, on success because I'm, I'm very curious from an advocacy perspective, um, which is what I uh, spent my career doing, uh, less technology. Uh, one of the, yeah, people always ask, you know, well, you know, what is advocacy? And, and there's a lot of stock answers for that, but it's basically operating in a way that puts your organization or, or who, who you're working for in a better spot down the road, uh, whether they, you know, what regard whether your mission is electronic warfare or cyber making you better off and the question of success comes up you know what is success and i sometimes feel like we too narrowly define what success is and that can lead to more failure and what i try to talk about is um, understanding the problem and accepting the fact that you might succeed but it might look completely different than what you originally anticipated and allowing for that say hey we might we're going to do x y and z and if we succeed maybe we succeed in a different way and maybe we've happened upon solving another problem that we weren't aware of at first and keeping those lines of communication open that involves relationships so i wanted to you know when you talk about valley of death moving technology forward uh, integration of cyber and ew do we too narrowly define success too quickly in, in our efforts and does that can that lead us astray or how do you how do you deal with the question of what is success in in this space well that's a tough one when it comes to ew because the field is esoteric the people who make the budget decisions have a very hard time the, the, in my experience some of the very brightest and best government employees are congressional staffers they're very smart people that's why they have their jobs. But even they sometimes have trouble getting their head around, well, what are you talking about? And it's very difficult to grasp. And I've noticed this, and it's in my book, The Spy in Moscow Station. One reason we didn't find this Russian implant for many, many years is it was like magic. It was like voodoo. Well, that's not possible. And a lot of what EW does is like that. It's like really esoteric, complex, hard to understand, and I'll just get back to something Harry Truman said, a very effective Washington insider. He said, in Washington, you have to be clearer than the truth. And that means that the people who make decisions, politicians and policymakers, 
have an agenda. They have something they're trying to do. And I would say how to frame what you're doing as the answer to their problem. My boss, John Negroponte, who was the ultimate deputy secretary of state under Condi Rice, but at the time he was the ODNI, I reported to him. I said, what is diplomacy? You know, all your guys here, you brought in the State Department, he said, Eric, diplomacy is the art of letting other people have your way. Mm -hmm. I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, you've got to make it look like their idea. And the way you look at their ideas, you don't present them, you don't sell them anything. You come in and you sit down and you ask them and you say, what keeps you up at night? What's your biggest problem? And whatever that is, you come up with something that aims in that direction. You basically push into pull. And so you're not going to change people's mind. They already have something they need to accomplish. I think the advocacy piece really is about understanding where their head is and putting what you have in there. I, I look at people as having a soda straw. They look at the world through a soda straw. Um, and that's their silo. But a policymaker or a politician is no different. They have things they want to accomplish. You can't get them to shift their soda straw to look at what you want them to. They're not going to do it. You have to take what you have and put it in their soda straw. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and target. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is in fact science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. 
this sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So let's stay there with a, a spy on Mos uh, Moscow station, uh, because again, this was a, a book talking about uh, what was happening in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and, and I'm gonna look at the bureaucracies that you deal with in that, particularly between State Department, NSA, CIA, because obviously there wasn't a lot of everybody getting that thought. So where has that come, that bureaucratic challenge, both in terms of how have we gotten better and where has it gotten worse as, as we've moved from the 70s and what was happening at uh, Moscow at the embassy to where we are today between those? And let's just start with those agencies that you address in uh, a spy in Moscow station. Bluntly, no better. When I went to, you know, many years after the book, I went to my counterpart at another three-letter agency who was a deputy director of the agency for science and technology. And I said, Dr. X, who will be nameless, I said, um, Look, I'm from Disney. I just got here. I want to cooperate. I think, you know, SIGINT, HUMANT, the natural thing together. He says, uh, Eric, you don't understand. Al-Qaeda is our target. You are our enemy. UNSA. You know, that was in the early 2000s. There have been some measures with joint purpleness and joint duty and Goldwater Nichols, and now we have ODNI, and there is some goodness there. But generally speaking, you're fighting human nature. Humans are tribal. That will never change. You may, like what they did with DNI to solve this problem, to get people to communicate and cooperate. I was there for two years. I saw it firsthand. We failed utterly. We did things that on paper looked right. And some of it actually did work when it came to IT plumbing. But generally speaking, um, the silos remain very healthy and pretty much fighting each other. In my book, The Spy in Moscow Station, I have a chart called the Who Hates Who chart. And I think that chart's pretty accurate. And thank God our adversaries have their own who hates who chart. So uh, I'm, I'm going to take this to the positive side from that book. So one of the most poignant pieces in the spy at Moscow station uh, was uh, uh, Charles Gandy, uh, who was one of the um, lead, I'll say, uh, thinkers uh, of that time. Uh, but it's an event when, when suddenly under Project Gunman, uh, that Mike Aronson, a young uh, um, person working there at NSA, working in R9, uh, that um, is not going to, you know, he doesn't have the degree, he's not promotable, those type of things, but he's absolutely brilliant. He thinks out of the box. And he makes the discovery on the IBM Select 3 uh, typewriter uh, that no one else could do in what it was about week nine or so. But could you talk us through what Charles Gandy does? Because it's important for all our readers to understand, you talk about the human element, but what does Charles Gandy do after he gets the phone call, realizes that he's got a young kid that thinks he's the guy, but before he walks out the door, he does something very important that is life-changing. Yeah. He has his wife, who's an artist, make a big award because he had set up a $10,000 reward for whoever found the exploit first, and Arneson did, but he realized that money was much less important than recognition and respect. And for Arneson in particular, who didn't even have a degree at the time, respect was the most important thing that he wanted. 
And so Gandhi was a genius when it came to technology, but even more, he understood people really well. And he understood that if you want to get and keep the best people, you've got to give them the freedom to do what they want, and you've got to recognize and reward them the second they do something excellent. So let me um, go back to one of the areas that uh, we talked about that's important to a lot of the folks here today. It's all about recruiting and retaining talent. And part of what we, you know, it goes back to the thing, are we asking the right questions? And we talked about if, if all we're looking for is five years of experience in the EW or the cyber side, we're not broadening that look to bring in that divergence of talent from those other areas. Uh, difficult to do. If you look at our HR system, it is built to do that, is to say, who's the smartest guy in EW? Who's been our biggest salesman? Who's been our biggest inventor? Who's been our biggest, you name that. But we're not looking into areas where people bring a, a completely different view uh, of what's happening. So how do, we, how do we make that change? Well, I want to start with the point of getting inside the head of the people you're trying to deal with, which is new talent. What motivates them? You know, people talk about money, but in reality, most HR studies show that money is not the big motivator for most employees. It's achievement, fulfillment, and recognition, and accomplishment. And so I think that if you say, look, we've got some incredible challenges here, like for example, in AI, we've got a really fascinating problem where we have our AI going up against someone else's AI. And that's the kind of thing that's gonna capture the imagination of the kind of person you want. So you look at all of your problems as liabilities, but they're your biggest recruiting asset because you can go to someone and say, look at this problem that we have. Our AI is going up against their AI. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is, and this is gonna sound horrible, but one reason NSA is able to recruit some of the best mathematicians in the world is it's hard for them to get jobs elsewhere. There's only so many tenure track. Now, with Hollywood using CG and quants and Wall Street, the demand for mathematicians has increased, but the fact is that they didn't have a lot of options. If you go to behavioral science schools, people getting PhDs in social psychology or industrial psychology or human factors, and you recruit them because any EW system, usually the weakest link is the human and also the strongest link. So behavioral science, I think, does need to be an added dimension. But also biologists, if you go and you get uh, zoologists and people who are experts in the kind of stuff I talked about today, you can pay them salaries that they couldn't get anywhere else and they might be very interested. So I think um, some of the talent that you need is out there. It just doesn't look like the talent you're looking for. And I will say one thing, you know, I'm a neuroscientist, but I write Python code and I write C++. These people can learn to do the skills that you need. And I think you will find that their weaknesses are also their strengths. They don't think like engineers, and that's a good thing sometimes. So I would say uh, go to the traditional disciplines, but find out what's a big problem and a challenge that will keep them challenged and give them something they can't get anywhere else. Give them the recognition. Um, have your best people go out and recruit. Usually if you have an HR person go out and recruit for that kind of talent, it isn't going to work. You've got to take your superstars and you've got to get them out there. And a new superstar who's embryonic, when he sees a real superstar, is going to say, I want to go work with that person. You have to look at, we call those magnets at Disney. We got our very best Imagineers and we, were the one, they, we put them on the front lines 
to recruit because those were the, 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 the biggest magnet that brought people in. So one of the um, panels that was done earlier during the uh, AOC International Symposium here was about one of those big challenges that we have right now is JADC2, the Joint All-Domain Command and Control. Uh, and, and, and as we sort of discussed in the panel discuss, it's really about, it's not as much about command and control as it is shortening that kill chain. What can we automate? How do we really bring both the cyber and the EW type pieces in there? And, and right now we're seeing that as a challenge in itself, even just getting the services between ABMS, project overmatch, uh, convergence, and bringing those together. Uh, help us to look forward from a visionary perspective. How do we take those next steps to change the battlefield in the way we want to, uh, to, give, uh, to give us success on the battlefield? Well, I want to go back to biology because when you think about nature, a new organism just doesn't pop de novo from nothing, like the particle-antiparticle pairs that pop out of the void to create dark energy. They always evolve from something that just preceded them, and it's usually a little twist in a gene that does it. And so you say, well, that's how na nature actually does it. Like when it comes to the fusion of EW and cyber, it's not like you create a new animal all of a sudden that does that. What you do is you take something that already does that and you do a twist to it and make it do it. So the way I would approach that problem is to say it's already happening. JADC2 is already happening. The fusion of cyber and EW is already happening. We still call it that. And if we look at all the nodes and edges in all the platforms that we have, and we took a step back and say, well, that's what they're doing now, but what could we make them do that's different and, and do like nature does and patch and tweak and adjust and bend it till it breaks? And when you bend it and it's out there in mission and it's actually saving lives and helping accomplish the mission, people would say, oh, this is great. We need more of that. And then someone says, well, to have more of that, you need a new platform, and then a new requirement will come about. So I think it's the bend it, tell it, break strategy. It's a lot more uh, practical to do modifications to program from the record than trying to get some new big program for the record through. Um, and I think that's actually what's probably going to end up happening. Um, I, I just want to jump in on, uh, you, ha you have two books that you talked about um, during your presentation today. The, the, the other one is Riding the Monster, Five Ways to Innovate Inside a Bureaucracy. And uh, you know, without giving out too much of the book away, but it, it's, it's, it's really chock full with real good advice. And I think that what was refreshing was sometimes it, you, you oftentimes hear, well, your bureaucracy stands in the way. Um, but you offer ways to work with it instead of against it in, in, in a gentle way that makes the bureaucracy think that it's actually doing Exactly That's exactly right. what you want, you know. So, um, and one of the things you talk about with innovation was, um, you know, sometimes innovation isn't just about the new technology, but it's about optimizing what you already have. And you just kind of touched on that. Um, what can you can you share with us a little bit about what, what inspired you to get to write this book at this time, and a little bit about you know what the, what li our listeners can uh, glean from you know uh, how how to engage the bureaucracy in a more uh, uh, healthy and productive way? Well, I've been an innovation guru ever since I left the government in 2007. Make a lot of money going to C-suites and offering wise opinion. And uh, basically everything I tried failed. I made a lot of money, but all the things I tried didn't work. And, and plus, most of my career as an innovator in running research labs was mostly failure, to be bluntly honest. 
and that goes with the turf, but I think there was more failure than there need to be. So I looked back and said, what was the thread that wove all these failures together? And I realized it was simple. It's that the crossing the valley of death, getting innovations across, really was not a technology gap, not a process gap, not a funding gap for productization money, a relationship gap. That you didn't have all of the informal relationships of trust and respect that were needed to get something across the finish line and to look at it as a chain. You talk about the kill chain, the innovation chain. Someone has to have the idea. Someone has to build a prototype. Someone has to want that and then turn the product into a real product and shrink wrap it. Someone has to want to put money in the budget to buy it. Someone has to buy it. Someone has to operate it. Someone has to maintain it. And if you don't get every single one of those steps online before you start, you will fail. And that is relationships. And so in my book, I talk about the way that is really done, not the way it's supposed to be done, is you do it by surfing human nature, not fighting it, which is people are tribal, so create healthy tribes and spend all your energy doing informal networking, do whatever you have to do, join the softball team, join the corporate volunteer organization, go to churches, go to uh, retirement ceremonies at NSA. I never missed a retirement ceremony because that's where I did my networking and that's where I got stuff done. And so you have to be street smart and look at the world as it really is, not the way they tell you it is. So, so let's jump to, you, you always describe this as two problems. One is building those relationships, but the other one you, you, you bring up is don't underestimate your adversaries. And so that's a, a big piece in terms, and, and you talked a little bit about, and a lot of your background, the strength on understanding Russia is where they don't just see everything as something new. They look at some of what I'll say the traditional areas, such as EW, and they, they become really good and maintain that skill craft in the area of RF, in the area of physics, acoustics, all those things that you bring out. So, so underestimating the adversaries, that other half of the problem. Well, that's right. And uh, I think and underestimating is one thing, but also not understanding. When it comes to the Russians in particular, I was a Russian cyber analyst at one of the three letters, uh, open source, completely unclassified work. And I was never failed to be surprised that they just didn't think the way we thought. And my dad taught me this. My dad was a rocket scientist at China Lake. And every time there was an Arab-Israeli war, he'd look at some of the captured Russian stuff. And he told me once, he said, they do not think like us. And he gave me an example of a, uh, of a uh, fire control computer on an artillery piece. They'd taken a German design and they'd come up with a set of elliptical gears that were not shaped like gears at all. And you didn't think it worked, but right before one gear would clash with another, it would clear it just a little bit. And it was a genius computer that was simple. It would work anywhere. And he said, no Western mind ever would have come up with that. And they are different. And I think that the only way to appreciate that difference is to live in their world and to speak their language and immerse yourself in it. And then you start to look at the world the way they do. And I think uh, I would say respecting is one thing, but becoming them is another. Well, General, that is all the time we have for today's episode. I want to thank both of you for joining me. Again, the two books that we discussed during the episode by Dr. Eric Heseltine is The Spy in Moscow Station, A Counter-Spy's Hunt for a Deadly Cold War Threat, and Riding the Monster, Five Ways to Innovate Inside Bureaucracies. Dr. Heseltine and General Walsh, 
Thank you for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks again. This was wonderful. I look forward to coming back next year. Thanks, Ken. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Eric Hazeltine and Guy Walsh for joining me at AOC 2022. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.